Hello and welcome back to the Killer Kind Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Miller, as always. Thank you to everyone who listened to the Gypsy Rose series. Lots of great feedback on that one, which I always love and appreciate. So thank you for that. If you haven't listened to the two-part Gypsy Rose Blanchard case, I highly recommend it. It was one that I had wanted to cover for a long time, so I was very excited to be able to dive into that one. This week, things take a little bit darker turn. Not that every case isn't dark, but this one in particular is hard to talk about because of what our victim had to endure the last final moments of her life. With that said, let's just go ahead and dive into the horrific murder of Rachel Berkheimer. Rachel Rose Berkheimer was born on January 16, 1984, in Everett, Washington, which was about 30 minutes outside of Seattle. And Rachel grew up in a loving home with her parents, Bill and Denise, along with her older sister, Megan. Rachel grew into a beautiful young girl inside and out. She was extremely kind, smart, and funny, and just an all-around great person. She was also very athletic. She played basketball, volleyball, and ran track in school, and she thrived at pretty much everything she did. Many have said she was always one of the best, if not the best, on whichever team that she was playing on. As I mentioned, she was funny. Her family said she was a great person that could mimic others. She was compared to Jim Carrey quite often. Her dad said she could have been a fantastic comedian one day, but that's not really the career that she was going for. There were two sort of dreams that she had. Her more practical one, if you want to call it that, was to be a veterinarian. She loved animals and her family said that she would have been fantastic at that. But Rachel had an even bigger dream and that was to become an actress. Again, her family said she would have been great at being an actress because she was so smart, so beautiful, and she really could have just done anything that she put her mind to. And like I said, she was smart, beautiful, and described as charismatic and fun to be around, so that meant that she was very popular in school. Her dad said, quote, she had so many social groups and such a big social network that I couldn't keep up. He also called himself her personal answering machine. And yes, she did have a ton of friends, but she was also described by her best friend Corey's mother as a firecracker. She was known to not take anything from anyone. She was a little feisty. And despite being a tiny little thing at four foot 11, she might have looked a little petite and sweet, but she would definitely bite your head off if she needed to, which sounds like my kind of girl. (laughs) Now, up until high school, Rachel's life was seemingly perfect. That was until sadly, she experienced some pretty traumatic events. She lost not one, not two, not even three, but six of her friends, all on separate tragic occasions. Now, I don't know if you ever experienced the death of a friend. I haven't personally, but I can remember being in high school and a classmate was killed in a car crash. And even though I wasn't close to them, it just hit the whole school pretty hard. 
I think because most people don't experience loss until they're much older, or at least that's how it should be. So at that age, when you don't even fully understand death, when something like this happens, it it's just shocking and it hits so much harder than you can ever imagine. So whereas a lot of teenagers might experience something like this once, Rachel had to experience it six separate times. And these weren't some sort of like illness, not that that makes it any better, but at least she could have seen it coming. But no, one of her friends drowned, freak accident. The other was involved in an accidental shooting and one even took their own life. Then there was the death of her best friend, Corey Haynes, who was involved in a horrible car wreck. All of her other friends' passings were extremely difficult and took their toll on Rachel, but with Corey's passing in particular, it hit her the hardest. The two were very close, and they acted almost like brother and sister, and her dad said that they were more like soulmates. So when Corey passed away, Rachel started deteriorating, as you can only imagine. Her family said it was just so sad that they realized they were slowly starting to lose their happy, bubbly teenager. She was no longer cracking jokes. She wasn't as outgoing or ambitious. Rachel made it a point to remain in Corey's family's life, however. She would visit his mother and bring her little gifts and trinkets like angels to watch over her. She would spend time with his family, including his nieces and nephews, like they used to when Corey was alive. She would go over to their house on family gatherings and spend time with them during the holidays. And not only would she continue to spend time with his family, she also kept pictures of Corey around her. She put pictures of him in her car and in her room. She even had his obituary hanging up in her bedroom. She was really just in a dark place. And the sparkle Rachel had slowly started to disappear. Prior to Corey's death, she was doing great in school. She held a part-time job as well and was very outgoing. But afterwards, she quit her job. She stopped hanging out with her other friends. And then before graduating, she dropped out of high school completely. By the age of 18, Rachel was no longer Rachel. Her sister Megan said the death of Corey truly killed her that day. She started hanging out with a more rough crowd and she started doing drugs and drinking alcohol as well. In 2001, she met a guy two years older than her at a party and his name was John Anderson, also known as Diggy. He introduced her to the rest of his friend group and this wasn't a good group of people as you can imagine. They smoked, they drank, they did drugs, plus they all had a criminal record of some sort or another. Everything from drug charges, violence charges, and robbery charges as well. Needless to say, Rachel didn't want to tell her family about this newfound friend group, so she didn't. (laughs) That was until one day that her dad received a phone bill that was over $600. He initially thought that this had to be a mistake, so he called the phone company and come to find out, Rachel had been talking to someone in the local jail. She had been calling and receiving calls from John Anderson, who had recently become her new boyfriend. Not only was he calling her, but she was 
also receiving handwritten letters from him expressing his love for her. So we've got us a criminal with a heart, right? (laughs) Isn't it the worst guys who tell you they love you the most? I mean, if he's sending you love letters or telling you he'd rather die than be without you, sweetheart, run. That is a huge red flag. That is not cute. That's not sweet. Please don't fall for it. (laughs) If he's calling you his soulmate after a month, run far away. And I'm sorry to the guys that are actually like true romantics, but in my experience and friends of mine's experiences, in this situation, it's the guys who confess their love a little too much that are the ones who will break your heart the most. Am I right? Ladies that have been through it. So to all my single ladies, just keep that in mind, okay? (laughs) But moving on. So she's in a relationship with a guy who's in jail. She's hanging out with this new friend group who are just crappy people. None of them have jobs. None of them are in school, despite their ages starting in high school, like age 16 and up. And not only that, this isn't just a normal friend group. They're actually a gang. They call themselves the Northwest Mafia. And John Anderson was one of like the higher ups or not necessarily the leader, but somewhere up kind of in the ranks, if you will, in this gang. But this gang really wasn't much of nothing. Don't be thinking like Sons of Anarchy or anything like that. These were a bunch of duds, okay? They did nothing. They drank and they did drugs. They sold drugs and they stole drugs. One article said that they just basically stole from other drug dealers. They played video games all day and just a bunch of deadbeats, to be honest. And all in all, they were just the worst kind of people to be around. Especially for a beautiful young girl with a bright future like Rachel had. I understand that she was grieving and she was probably numbing her pain. So as sad as it is, it's not abnormal behavior after everything that she has been through. Now, once her dad realized what was going on and who she was talking to, he sat her down and told her like, look, you can't be doing this. You can't be hanging out with someone that's in jail. And of course, Rachel was like, no, you don't understand. He's going through something right now. But when he's out, he's going to turn his life around and everything's going to be fine. Now, this was all that Bill knew, that his daughter was dating someone in jail. He did not know the full extent of their relationship, nor did he know just who this guy was or who he hung out with. You see, John was very possessive when it came to Rachel. Every time they would meet up, he would smell her hair and her clothes to see if he could tell if she had been cheating on him or not. He was so insecure that he was constantly accusing her of cheating. Then there were the bruises that Megan noticed on her sister. It never was confirmed that the bruises were from John, but we can only assume and we can pretty much agree that it probably was from him. After John went to jail, it seems like he became more paranoid about Rachel leaving him, which is why I'm sure that he constantly sent her those love letters, pouring his heart out to her. In one letter, he just wrote, I love you 33 times. I mean, I really think he was losing his mind a little bit while in there. And Rachel began to notice and she started to think that this relationship may not be good for her at all. And thank goodness, right? And honestly, 
I can't blame the guy. <laughs> he probably has never had a girl this gorgeous, this like good. You know, I feel like he really outkicked his coverage, as some people might say. But this is also like Rachel's bad boy. I mean, I feel like we all know somebody that went through a bad boy phage. A lot of girls go through that. And this was Rachel's. A little bit more bad than than most women go through, but but I understand I'm not too surprised. Now, it was with that realization that Rachel decided that she would finally open up about her relationship to her sister, Megan. And Rachel went through everything, his possessiveness, his jealousy, and how he always thought she was cheating on him. Then she mentioned that he had threatened her multiple times. I couldn't find anything that said exactly what he said during these threats, but I'm sure we can use our imaginations. I wouldn't put anything past this guy. So the two girls stayed up all night, you know, basically until two o'clock in the morning, talking about this relationship. And by the end of the night, Rachel made the decision to end things with John Anderson. Now, this was while he was still in jail, so it was pretty easy for Rachel to cut him off. She didn't have to see him, although he did continue trying to call and write letters trying to win her back, but it wasn't working. Her family said that it finally felt like they were getting their Rachel back. She started going to church again. She started spending time with her family again, and she started reconnecting with her old friends from high school. Her family said that she was getting her light back. Rachel's father remembers going out onto the porch one Sunday morning and seeing his daughter. He said he remembers looking at her and just her being so radiant and so full of life in that moment. He said this was the Rachel that he hadn't seen in months. And it was on this particular morning that Rachel and her dad had a conversation where she told him about this new friend that she had named Maurice Revis. Maurice was a guy who she had met through the Northwest Mafia, but just like Rachel, he too wanted out of that lifestyle. So the two were bonding over the fact they were young, both 18 years old, and wanted to get out of the life of drugs and alcohol and really just turn their lives around. Now, Rachel was trying to get her good life back, but Maurice sadly never really had much of a good life. He had been in foster care from a very early age. So when Maurice was introduced to this gang, they acted like a family. And I'm sure he fell for that family dynamic. And it became all that he knew. However, when he saw that Rachel was getting out and started to better herself, he decided to ask her for help in doing the same. They were both going to go back to school, graduate, and get their lives back on track. And everything was going good for a few weeks or so. That was until John Anderson got out of jail. So this relationship with Maurice was completely platonic, which left Rachel single and ultimately, you know, vulnerable when it came to her now ex-boyfriend. So I'm sure you know where this is going. Once John got out of jail, he was able to win Rachel back and the two started hanging out again. And Rachel just fell back into this crowd. But things were a little different this time. Rachel didn't take near as much crap from John whenever he would act out or not treat her right. So she would break up with him when he acted like this. Now they did end up getting back together a few times. 
they'd break up and they'd get back together. However, the last time they broke up, Rachel was officially done. She said there was no way that she would get back together with him. So after this, she went on a date with another guy. And unfortunately, it was actually with one of John's friends. And as you can imagine, this didn't sit well with the semi-lead gang member. He started spreading rumors about Rachel, saying that she was a traitor and how she was sharing their gang secrets with other people, including members of the rival gang. Now, none of this has ever been confirmed. I strictly believe this was all lies spread about Rachel, but because he was so high up in this gang and he had a lot of friends, everyone in the gang believed him. So eventually, this entire group of people hated Rachel. Before it got too bad, though, Rachel invited several members of the Northwest Mafia to a hotel to party. And apparently this made the gang members believe this was a setup. At this point, they had heard she was telling other people their gang secrets, so why wouldn't she maybe tell the cops? So when Rachel invited them to this party, they strongly believed that she was trying to set them up and that this was some sort of sting operation. So this only made matters worse. And eventually word got around to her that there was actually a hit out on her name, which means someone wanted her dead. Rachel found out about this and was rightfully terrified. So she goes to her older sister and confides in her once again. Now, Megan comforts her sister and tells her that this is more than likely just a bunch of punk guys. They're mad, so they want to scare her a little bit. They won't actually do anything. She reassures her that there's nothing to worry about. But at the same time, she does tell her, just be aware of your surroundings and stay away from John at all costs. Megan would later recall after her younger sister left her room that night that she had a little bit of a bad feeling. Thinking to herself, you know, could this be true? Could this be a real issue for my sister? But she remembers kind of shaking that off and thinking, no, there's no way. Nothing bad will happen. It'll be fine. But we all know this one friend, or in this case, a sister, that just doesn't listen to the advice that she's given. On September 23rd, 2002, she was invited to a house party that she attended with several of her friends who were all members of the Northwest Mafia. So not really keeping her distance from John Anderson. Now, Rachel wanted to attend this party to show these gang members that she was not a snitch, that she was still their friend, and that she could be trusted. One of the friends she went with was her new friend, Maurice Revis. So she felt like she had an ally and someone she could really trust with her. Although this was considered a house party, it wasn't really much of a house party at all. It was just a bunch of the gang members hanging out, smoking weed, drinking, and playing video games. I mean, I just don't, I can't think of any, not that I know any gangs, but I can't think of all the shows that I've watched about gangs. None of them are playing video games. It's just a weird thing to be doing. Like, shouldn't you be doing some sort of gang stuff? Not playing video games? I mean, luckily you are. I mean, that keeps you from being, you know, doing other things, I guess. But I digress. Anyways, <laughs> there wasn't much to this party at all. But everything was going well. Rachel was enjoying herself with her friends and everything was good. That was until John Anderson showed up. John busted through the door and he appeared 
very upset. Now, the story varies as to why he was so mad, but the main one, and the one I personally believe based on all the different reports, was that John wasn't aware of this little party. But somebody told him about it and told him that Rachel was there. So he showed up and he was pissed. <laughs> After he walked in, he immediately started yelling at everyone, even trying to start fights with a few of them, throwing punches or slapping a few, I think, in the face. And he eventually pulled out a gun and then multiple guns were drawn. So tensions were high. Rachel obviously panics and tries to leave. So she starts kind of sneaking towards the door. However, John sees this and grabs Rachel by the back of her head. A little bit of a trigger warning here. This gets a little bit hard to hear from now on. So consider yourself warned. But after John grabs his former girlfriend, he then punches her in the face and throws her onto the floor. Once she was on the floor, Rachel found herself surrounded by everyone else at the party. And they all started beating Rachel. She's being kicked and hit and pretty much just tortured. At one point, Rachel hears one of the members yell out to someone to turn the music up in the room to drown out her screams. And you may be thinking to yourself that, well, this is a little odd. How did it turn from John fighting everyone in the group to now everyone attacking Rachel? Well, that's because this whole thing was a setup. Come to find out, after Rachel broke things off with John in jail, he conjured up a plan. He reached out to none other than Maurice Revis. I'm sure you can guess where this is going. Maurice was instructed to befriend Rachel, to gain her trust, and then help set her up to be killed. And she knew there was a hit out on her, so she was trying to believe it wasn't real, or she maybe felt she could get herself out of it, but unfortunately, she was very wrong. Now, the original plan was for earlier that afternoon, Rachel was going to be invited over to another gang member's home, a guy named Nathan Lovelace. The plan was for Rachel to come to this guy's house. Then John was going to back a van up to the garage and wait for her. After she got there, the plan was to kidnap her and take her to another location. That plan ultimately fell through when Nathan's dad came home that afternoon unexpectedly. So that's when they came up with the plan for the party that night. After Rachel was violently beaten, she was scooped up and taken out to the garage. She was bound by tape and she was gagged. Then they all just went back inside to think about what to do next. So yeah, we got real smart criminals here. <laughs> they had this initial attack planned, but they didn't come up with what they were going to do afterwards. I mean, so stupid. So they literally just sat around pretty much doing nothing. These guys just ordered some pizza, continued to play video games, and smoke pot. During this time, though, they did try to come up with a few ideas. A few ideas were thrown out there. You know, try to determine what they should do with Rachel now. One idea was to hold her for ransom, knowing that her parents would certainly be willing to pay good money to get their daughter back. Then there was mention of gang rape. Thankfully, that didn't happen. 
which I, I mean, I can't even imagine just casually talking about that in a room. I just can't even imagine any of this, really. Then there was even a plan to take Rachel back to a hotel for a few days to let her heal up. And then they were going to release her because now they've done what they wanted to do. They wanted to scare her, let her heal. She'll be fine. She's not going to go to the police. She won't say anything now. All is well. In the meantime, though, poor Rachel was just probably so scared, so confused, and hurt how she was so betrayed by her so-called friends. And I'm sure she was in a lot of physical pain as well. She was in that garage for at least five hours before there was a glimmer of hope. One of the gang members' girlfriends came home. Her name was Trissa Connor, and she was actually the owner of the house. The house in which she shared with the gang member, Yusuf Jihad, who was the oldest member of the group at age 32. So Yusuf's girlfriend was coming home after being in her nursing classes all day. When she arrived, she came in through the garage, where she was horrified to find this beautiful blonde bound and gagged on the floor of her own garage. I can only imagine how she ran up to Rachel, trying to figure out what happened to this poor young girl. So, Trissa walks into the house, kind of like nothing's wrong. She doesn't want to alert the guys in any way that she was going to try to help this girl. That said, she snuck into the kitchen. She grabbed a knife and headed back out towards the garage. However, John Anderson intervened and stopped Trissa from saving her. And I'm sure Rachel slowly started to realize that her potential savior wasn't coming back to help her. When the garage door did finally open, it wasn't Trissa coming back. It was John and his friends. It would later be reported that Trissa got into a verbal argument with John Anderson and the guys inside the house. And she told them that if they don't get Rachel off her property, she was going to call the police. And I'm sorry, excuse me, not that they needed to let her go or help her, but that she just needed to be off her property. And if not, then she would call the police. Why don't you you just call the police now? I mean, that makes no sense. I mean, how could she seemingly be just as heartless as these other guys? I mean, she is dating a gang member, so I guess we shouldn't be surprised. Now, Trissa was ordered to stay out of the garage, but she would later recall hearing the men beating Rachel again. She then saw them stuff Rachel into a large black duffel bag and into the back of a Jeep. Rachel was not dead at this point, however. A few of the guys jumped into the Jeep and took off with her. The guys in the car were 18-year-old Maurice Rivas, who we know. 22-year-old John Whitaker and the, the owner of the Jeep, Matthew Durham. Now, from what I understand, the men still didn't have a plan. They were just told to get the girl off the property. So that's what they did. Once again, they basically did nothing for a couple hours. They just drove around in the Jeep trying to figure out what to do next. John Anderson was not in the car with these guys, so... They eventually decided they needed to go back to the house to find out what John wanted to do next. That said, there wasn't enough room in the Jeep for them to pick up John. So so instead, at around 11 p.m., they drove the car up a mountain trail named Mill Creek. Maurice got out of the Jeep. 
he took the duffel bag out that Rachel was still inside of, and he and Rachel waited at the top of this mountain trail while the other men drove back to the house to pick up John. There were a few reports that claimed Marie spoke to Rachel during this time. She was pretty much pleading for her life, and Maurice reportedly told her that, you know, he thinks it'll be okay, he thinks they'll let her go, but at the same time, Rachel knew that wasn't the case. One report claimed that Rachel said she knew she was going to die, and she begged Maurice not to let them drown her. Anything but drowning, she said. In the meantime, the rest of the guys get back to where John was, and they picked him up. John threw a few shovels and a pick into the back of the Jeep. He hopped in and told the guys to drive. The guys drove up back to the mountain and hopped out and started digging. But while Whitaker and Anderson started digging, Maurice stayed over by the car and was just drinking and smoking. Eventually, John Anderson got mad and yelled at him to come help. After they spent some time digging, Anderson went over and let Rachel out of the duffel bag. He initially ordered John Whitaker to go over to her and undress her and take all of her jewelry off as well. Rachel told him that, no, I can do it myself, and she did. She took everything off except for a small ring that she had on. She begged Anderson to let her keep it because it was a ring that her best friend Corey had given her, which had meant so much to her since the passing. But of course, John Anderson showed no mercy and made her take her ring off. After Rachel took the ring off, she just collapsed to the ground and began praying. Anderson told her not to worry that she would be up there soon enough. Then he told Rachel to go and lay in the grave that he had dug for her, face down in the dirt. And she did as she was told, and she accepted her fate. John Anderson then repeatedly shot Rachel in the back of the head until all of his bullets were gone. At one point during this, the gun actually jammed. He was able to fix it, and then he continued unloading his clip. After Rachel was killed, all three of the men filled the hole back up with dirt and left the scene. While in the car, John Anderson told the other guys that, quote, loose ends would be cut off, meaning they took this to mean that if anyone snitched on anyone, they would be taken out, just like Rachel. When they got back to the house, the two guys drove Rachel's car to an area near where one of her ex-boyfriend's houses were, assuming they were trying to frame him for the murder. Then Maurice and Matthew gathered all of Rachel's belongings and put them into a pillowcase and threw it onto a fire before disposing of it. Now, Rachel's family at this point knows no different. You know, she's out doing who knows what at this point. There's no telling what she told them. But when she didn't return home that next day, they kind of started to worry. I mean, yes, Rachel had fallen into the wrong crowd and it wasn't unlike her to be out all hours of the night, but that doesn't mean they didn't worry. So Rachel is last seen on the 23rd, but it wasn't until the 25th that the family decided to report her missing. They knew that no matter where Rachel was or what she was doing, 
what she was going through, that she wouldn't be gone this long by choice. They knew something had to be terribly wrong. As soon as Rachel was reported missing, search parties went out looking for the 18-year-old, as well as missing person reports being posted everywhere in this town. Her parents were doing public appeals on the news, and this was quickly becoming a well-known missing persons case in the area, which means word spread pretty quickly, and it generated some leads. One lead in particular came from the mother of Jeffrey Barth, who was a member of the Northwest Mafia. Now, the tip seemed pretty random in my opinion. It's unclear if this mother knew anything about the night of the murder, but she told investigators that the group of guys her son hung out with, including Rachel's ex-boyfriend, John Anderson, drove around in Matthew Durham's red Jeep. So that's where police started. They call up Matthew and bring him in for questioning. Now, at first, they just tell him, look, we know you know something. We know you're, you're a part of this gang, and we know Rachel had been hanging out with you guys, so you have to know something. And initially, Matthew was trying to stay quiet and act like he didn't know a thing. However, they did eventually break him down by saying, we can get you a lesser sentence. If you're involved in this, you need to tell us right now what happened. If you lie, then it's not going to be good for you. And of course, he was 17 at the time, so he completely blew the whistle and told investigators everything. He explained to the police where Rachel's body was, although he couldn't give them an exact location because he said it was so dark and he wasn't familiar with the area. But either way, it was a start. So a search team, along with cadaver dogs, made their way up the mountain. After two long days, the cadaver dogs finally came upon a fresh-looking pile of dirt, and the team started digging. After just two big scoops, their shovel hit something. And it was the skin of Rachel Berkheimer. She was found lying face down with her hands under her in a praying position. After 10 torturous days, one nightmare for the Berkheimer family was over, but a new one was just beginning. Now, they sadly had to learn what all happened to their beautiful daughter and sister. During the two-day search, Matthew told them everything that had happened that night, where it took place, and he gave them the names of everyone who was involved in Rachel's vicious attack and murder. He also told police that the, about the pillowcase filled with her belongings that they had tried burning. And shortly before they found Rachel's body, investigators uncovered the partially burnt items that belonged to Rachel, basically confirming that Matthew was telling the truth and that they were on the right path. Also, while searching for Rachel's body, a gun was found in one of the nearby ponds. They found bullet casings at the crime scene that matched this gun in particular. And it was conclusively determined to be the gun that was used to kill Rachel. They had a search warrant to search the home of John Anderson as well for anything that directly tied him to the murder. And sure enough, they uncovered the same duct tape that was used to cover Rachel's mouth as well as the shovels used to dig her grave. All in all, eight men were arrested. All in all, eight men were arrested and charged with the involvement of Rachel's death. 
Those eight men were 20-year-old John Anderson, who was charged with first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder, was also facing the death penalty if convicted. 22-year-old John Whitaker was also charged with first-degree murder, conspiracy to commit, and facing the death penalty as well. 32-year-old Yusuf Jihad was also charged with first-degree murder, first-degree kidnapping, and conspiracy to commit kidnapping. 22-year-old Jeffrey Barth was also charged with first-degree murder, first-degree kidnapping, and conspiracy to commit kidnapping. 20-year-old Tony Williams, who was also facing the same charges as Jeffrey and Yusuf. 16-year-old Nathan Lovelace was charged with conspiracy to commit first-degree kidnapping and first-degree rendering criminal assistance. 17-year-old Matthew Durham was charged with first-degree murder. And lastly, 18-year-old Maurice Revis was charged with first-degree murder. Five of the men pleaded guilty, taking a plea deal for a lesser sentence. Nathan Lovelace was the first to take the plea deal. He had the least involvement out of all of them, and he didn't do much, but he also did nothing to stop it. He was sentenced to just 30 days in prison. Then there was Tony Williams. He was supposedly the one who put the duct tape. Then there was Tony Williams. He was supposedly the one who put the duct tape over Rachel's mouth, and he was the one who turned up the radio to drown out her screams. He was sentenced to just nine years for his involvement. Jeffrey Barth was confirmed to be the Jeffrey Barth was confirmed to be there while Rachel was being held hostage, and he supposedly bragged to some fellow inmates while awaiting his sentencing that he hit Rachel with the barrel of his gun. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Matthew Durham, he actually drove the Jeep that night, and for his plea, he was given 26 years. Maurice played a huge role in Rachel's murder as well. But because he took a plea deal, he was given just 26 years as well. The other three men, John Anderson, John Whitaker, and Yusuf Jihad, didn't take plea deals, so they all went to trial. John Anderson acted like complete scum during the trial. He was often seen smiling and laughing during the trial. He looked over and winked at Rachel's family at different times as well. Just an absolutely disgusting person. Luckily, he was found guilty on all of his charges. Although he was facing the death penalty, he did receive just life in prison without the possibility of parole. John Whitaker was also found guilty of all his charges, and he too was sentenced to life as well. Yusuf was also found guilty for all of his charges. However, he was only sentenced to 37 years. All of the men who pleaded guilty had to testify against these three men as part of their plea deal, so I'm sure they are still walking around with a target on their backs. John Anderson has since tried to appeal his sentencing. He did actually get a second trial, but he was once again found guilty on all charges. He has told Crime Watch Daily that he was working on turning his life around, that he was no longer the horrible person that he used to be. Maurice Revis has since apologized as well, saying that he was a coward and he did everything that he did out of fear. 
and that he failed Rachel miserably. And that is the Rachel Berkheimer case. How horrible. This poor girl, just everything she went through to experience such major tragedies in her life that sent her down this dark path with just the wrong guy. It's just crazy how quickly our lives can change. I don't blame her at all for turning to drugs and alcohol. I know that's the way a lot of people will cope with tragedy, even though it's not right. And it's one of the lifestyles that are just hard to get out of. But she really wanted to. And if she had more time, then I know that she could have turned things around and gotten back to the Rachel that her family knew and loved. But sadly, John Anderson robbed her of that bright future. As always, I want to know your thoughts on today's episode. So be sure to head over to the podcast Instagram or Facebook page to share your thoughts there. You can comment on today's episode post or you can chat. Um, in the comments there. You can DM me as well and we can talk about it. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast or today's episode if you can to help others find the show. I'll be back next time with a brand new episode. Until then, as always, stay safe. Bye.